Welcome. <clears throat> yeah. So this is the first week of our um, eight-week practice period focused on the Four Noble Truths. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I'm really excited about this. Uh, it's been a lot of fun for me. I've been doing a, a lot of research and uh, having to having to freshen my own understanding about this so that I can communicate it. And it's, it's, really, it's really great. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to be able to do that. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is what is a practice period? You know, why, why would we do this? From the time of the Buddha, the Sangha, the, the monks and the nuns, would gather every year during the rainy season uh, for three months. And they began to have a, a retreat at that time. And they did it for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons was an ethical reason. Uh, and during the rainy time in India, uh, that's when the roads and the trails are covered with worms and bugs that are moving everywhere. And when you've got a Sangha of 500 or so monks and nuns moving through an area, uh, you're going to kill all kinds of these critters that you're going to step on. So just from an ethical point of view, they didn't want to do that. And from a practice point of view, the, the Sangha spent a lot of time caring for the communities that they, that they would pass through. And small groups of monastics would go into, into villages and different areas spread out and, and help people. But you can't sustain that without having a sustained time of, of deepening together. And so they recognized that, that they really needed that. And so they would come back together and, and, um, and deepen. And frankly, travel was really difficult. You know, walking around, they had to walk everywhere, of course. They didn't have planes and trains like we do. Um, and so it was hard in the mud to get around. So lots of reasons would bring them back. And this is, this is still the practice in a lot of monastic communities to every year come back for the three-month rains retreat. And it's done more in the Theravadan uh, tradition than in the Mahayana tradition. We're a Mahayana Zen tradition, and we tend not to do that quite so much, but uh, other, other traditions of, of Buddhism do it quite regularly. Uh, and because our tradition also includes the Theravadan tradition, because in Vietnam, it was, Vietnam was a stopping point between India and China. So as these traditions came out of India and moved their way into China, they, they came through Vietnam. And so Vietnam, our tradition, has both Theravadan and Mahayana together. So our monastic communities still do the 90-day retreats. And um, they've just finished that, actually. It was, it was going on over the winter. So during that time, the monks and nuns don't leave the monastery unless there's a, a, some you know, medical reason or a teaching reason. They really focus on, on staying together and deepening their practice together. And I went down this year and, and joined the, the monastic sangha for a part of the winter retreat at Deer Park. And it was so lovely to, to, um, to participate in that settled energy. So we don't have the chance to do that as lay people. It's pretty tough for us to set aside 
three months every year uh, where we don't move around. Uh, but we can do practice periods. We can do a, a lay version of the rains retreat for ourselves. Um, and we can use that 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 time to deepen our practice. We can focus on a particular topic or practice and together as a sangha, look and look and look at it and practice it deeply together. And this has great benefit, great benefit. You know, the Buddhist canon is vast. It's vast. And as lay people in the West, we have access to very little of it. We have access to very little of it because we don't have the time, first of all, to offer to it. We're not doing this every day, seven days a week, as, as our vocation. Um, and so much of it has not even been translated into English. We're, we're dealing with just a tiny little fragment of, of the canon. Uh, in Korea, there's a, a temple on Mount Gaia, and they have what's called the Tripitaka Koreana. And this is a collection of 80,000 wood print carvings, and they're about this long by about this tall, and there are 80,000 of them stacked on shelves in a building that was built in the 1500s, and these, um, these woodblock prints were made in, in uh, about a decade, around 1240 or so. And it's this tremendous resource, tremendous resource of which we as Westerners and English speakers know very, very little. But there it is. And I wish I had a picture to show you. It's, it's an amazing uh, space. I heard um, Norman Fisher give a talk recently, and he, he and his wife went there. And when his wife walked into this, into this building, this ancient building, it has a, it has a gravel floor uh, and, and these pillars that come down onto, the, onto rocks that, that form the foundations for these great shelves, uh, she, she fell on her knees and, and bowed and cried. It was so overwhelming to see the vastness of the Dharma teaching that's there. And there have been generation after generation after generation of monks in Korea taking care of, of, of this and, and holding it for us. Mm. It's the oldest complete Tripitaka, which is, the, the Tripitaka means that at the time of the Buddha, it was all uh, oral tradition, all memorized. And, and they, as they began to write it down, they put it into these different baskets, three different baskets, depending on what the teachings were. And so that's what that Tripitaka uh, refers to as the three baskets that, that held all this. It must have been pretty big baskets. Uh, <laughs> another reason we do a practice period is because it really helps the Sangha to come together. We have an opportunity to focus our attention on the same thing week after week together and do the same thing. And we can't wake up by ourselves. It's not an individual activity. We really need each other. And we need all of the various views that we can bring to this practice and to the Dharma. Um, I, can't, I can't see it all myself. 
I need you. I need your wisdom. I need your focused looking together. So, so it's really um, something that it's precious that we do this. And it's an illusion to think that we don't need each other. And it also creates this lovely experience for the Sangha. You know, over my, over my time uh, with, the, with the Sangha, uh, I've deepened so much with people in these kinds of activities and in, in, in simply sitting silently and created this kind of intimacy that is so rare in the world. Uh, and that's something that we, can, that we can build with each other. So that's, that's sort of a quick overview of why we might do a practice period. We're going to use a particular method as we do this, a method of how to look at what it is we're going to look at. And this method is, uh, was taught by the Buddha, and it, it has three steps. And I'm going to try to keep us, keep us coming back to these three steps over and over because it, it's a very effective method for, um, for opening our hearts. So the first step, well, here, here's the three steps. We, we engage our mind, we engage our, our um, body and heart, and we engage our non-self, our, our larger self. So what, what does that mean? The mind, first step. <clears throat> This is where, when we encounter something, we think about it. We use our mind. We, we, we analyze it. We um, roll it over. We read it. We decide whether or not it seems like a reasonable thing. You know, is this something I want to do? Does this make sense to me? It's what we do mostly here. You know, we, we look at, at, uh, at sutras, we read sutras, and we look at them and we go, uh, does this make any sense? Uh, what does that word mean? Um, why does it say it that way? You know, we, we, we engage our minds, and we have good minds. This is really great. <clears throat> um, and we know that we're ready to move on from that step when we can look at something and we can assent to the wisdom that we see there. You know, we might not really understand what it says fully, but we can use our minds to say, that seems like a pretty good thing to do. I think that might be, I think that might be true, or I think that might be effective, or whatever it is that we decide about it. So it's important. We're human beings with great minds, so we start there. We start by analyzing and taking it in. <clears throat> So if we decide that it's something that uh, is, is worth pursuing, then we're ready to go on to the second step. And the second step is to take it into our body, into our heart, to experience it, to understand it. So that word, understand, I think is, is really exactly what we do. We stand under what it is that we've taken in. So like for instance, we're going to be talking about suffering for the first few weeks. So we're gonna use our minds to decide whether we wanna do that, whether it seems like the right thing, you know, and it may or may not, you know. But when we go to the second step, what we're doing is we're saying, I am willing to stand under my suffering 
I am willing to experience my suffering, to feel the full weight of it on me, to really stand under it. Um, in the in the sutras, there's there's a phrase that that uh, we come back to, um, and this phrase has confused me. It confused me for years. Uh, like for instance, we look at the body in the body, the feelings in the feelings, the mind in the mind, and I wondered what what does that mean? You know what what is that? And I think that's exactly what what this second step is pointing to. When we're looking at the body, it's not from a disengaged point of view. We're looking at our body while in our body. You know, we're not looking, we're not thinking about our mind in an abstract way. We are in our mind while we are looking at our mind. We are feeling our feelings while we are in the feelings. So this is the second step. <clears throat> There's a, a calligraphy over the over the altar at Deer Park Monastery, big one, you know, it's like five or six feet across. It's a, a carved from one of Ty's calligraphies, and it says, "This is it. This is it." And this second practice is when we start to take the pronoun "it" and we put a noun with it. We don't just say, "This is it." We say, "Ah, this is anger." Ah, this is back pain. This is judgment. We're in it. We're experiencing it. We're seeing it right here in this body, in this feeling, in this mind. It's not an, it's not an abstraction or a looking um, from outside. And that process is a profound and um, important process. You know, I can only help us with the first step, the mind part. I can talk about stuff. I can point you at resources. But this second step, this is you. You know, this is, this is, this is each of us having to do this for ourselves. I can't do this for you. I'm not in your body. I don't know what it feels like. I'm not in your feelings. I don't know what it feels like. You're the one that has to feel it and know it for yourself. So that takes us to the third step. <clears throat> if we do that second step and we really know for ourselves what this feels like, then the third step is to know that we know. Well, that sounds kind of bizarre, doesn't it? This is the step of fostering awareness. So let me give you an example. This is a little bit abstract. Uh, I spent most of this last week at Harborview Hospital. My mom was having surgery. And uh, it was a difficult time uh, for, for me and for um, uh, my family and for a, a lot of people that I uh, was bumping into. A lot of suffering. There was a lot of suffering came up in me uh, being there. <clears throat> so uh, when I was driving home, I noticed that uh, driving up I-5, I was filled with judgment. You know, I was judging everything and everyone, you know, and, and I just made a commitment to myself that I would simply observe this. So I see, oh, truck in left lane. Uh, I say, ah, this is judgment. 
And I was, you know, I thought, you know, and then I, you know, then another judgment and another judgment and another judgment. And I could feel the pain of these judgments in my body. I could feel my suffering. But there was another part of me that was aware that could see all of this going on, but it was not experiencing the pain of that body and those feelings. It was awareness. And so I call this third step non-self because this is not just me watching. This is awareness. It's not John's awareness. It's awareness. This is something that each of us will find for ourselves and know for ourselves what that is. And it's, again, something I can't help you with. But it is a, it is a, a, a real um, a real thing and important. And the reason that it's important is because we're going into difficult territory. We're going to be looking very clearly at suffering, at our own suffering. And there's a danger that we can be overwhelmed by this. There's a danger that as our own suffering becomes apparent in our experience, that we can, um, we can crumble from it. But this third step, this knowing that we know, is like, uh, it's like the wheels on a cart. This, this, this awareness is like the wheels on a cart. All our suffering can come down onto the cart and all its weight on the cart, and we have a way to keep moving forward because we have these wheels. Without these wheels, all that suffering can come down on us and it can just make us go boom. <laughs> And that's it. That's as far as we go. <clears throat> so here's another analogy, a way to think about this. We think about engaging first with our mind. That's a circle. Just imagine our mind being a circle. Now we can expand that circle and we can think of engaging with our bodies and our hearts. It's a larger circle. It contains our minds. And now we can think about engaging with the awareness that is beyond self, that's a much larger circle. So all of this is just, it's not replacing, not saying mind's bad, body's good, anything like that. It's just ways of zooming out and seeing more deeply as we go. So I can, I can help bring these things to us but you're the one that has to stand under your own suffering, your own difficulty, your own joy and happiness, all the things that you experience, the pain in your body, the, the, the ecstasy in your body. You're the only one that can stand under those things. So I'll try and keep bringing us back to this, this way of being engaged with the mind, stand under this with the body, and bring in the larger awareness at the same time. And I'll try and keep pointing us back to this throughout this this uh, practice period. Okay. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit about the Buddha because that's where this came from. <clears throat> so it's hard to, it's hard to know what to say and what to, what to leave out because um, I could try and tell the whole story and we'd take all eight weeks to do that. <laughs> but but the, the Buddha was born 
into a very, as we would say in today's language, privileged situation, right? He was born a prince in a a small kingdom near Nepal, and he grew up knowing only luxury. And his parents protected him from everything that could bring anything but um, happiness and uh, contentment uh, and luxurious experiences. They protected him. They were, they, were, they, were, they were loving him in the way that they knew to love him. They had that to offer him, and that's what they gave. And, and he, as he, as he grew up, um, was able to go outside of this, of this palace, this protection that he had, and see that there was suffering in the world, and he was shocked by it. He saw sickness. He saw old age. He saw death. And it, was, it shook him to his core. He had no idea this was going on. And he saw it right in his own society, in the, in the people he was raised to care for. And um, so he said, I cannot go back to just this luxurious life. I need, I need to understand this. I need to figure out what, what is going on here. I need to see through this. Why should there be so much suffering in the world? So as, as we uh, tend to do, um, he figured, well, if all this luxury isn't the answer, it must be, I must, I must need to strip away all this luxury, and that must, that's how I'll find the answer. So he set off on a, uh, practicing austerities, starving himself, doing all kinds of, all kinds of things to his body, saying, oh, this, is, this body is the forest of all unwholesome actions. I must... I must separate myself from it. And he did this for several years. He went to, around to various teachers. He explored. He, he left his family. He didn't even give himself that comfort. Left his wife and, and young son. <clears throat> and he, he practiced austerities so strongly that he almost died. And he was saved by a young girl who found him and gave him some rice milk and... and, and uh, and nourished him back to health. And he saw that, no, it's not, it's not um, either luxury or austerity. That's the key, but I still don't know quite what it is. So he made a decision that he would sit until he understood. And he sat under a papala tree um, and with the resolution that he would stay there until he, until he understood. And he, st- and he sat and he sat and he sat. Until one morning he saw the, the morning star rising. And he had, he had his insight. He saw through. It's a wordless insight. But he knew for himself. You know, in the, in the third step we were talking about, he had his third step. He knew. He knew that he knew. He had to figure out how to talk about this. He didn't know how to talk about it. <clears throat> um, I want to back up a little bit. Before he had his insight, as he was sitting under the tree, he was visited by Mara. So Mara is in the, in, in the Indian canon, the god or the goddess of, of um, destruction, suffering, difficulty. 
kind of like the devil. <clears throat> and, and, and Mara saw that the Buddha was getting close to understanding. So Mara said, okay, well, we got we to gotta cut this off at the pass. So Mara decided to, to um, tempt the Buddha with all sorts, of, all sorts of different things. So the first thing that he tempted him was, with was desire. You know, he, he, showed, he showed the Buddha um, lust and power and fame, and he offered him all these things, and the Buddha was unmoved. He wouldn't, wouldn't take the bait. So the next thing that Mara dragged out to, to tempt him was, was, was fear. So Mara sent these armies at him, and, uh, and, and in the Buddhist mythology, the, the arrows are flying at the Buddha from these armies, and the Buddha's heart was so filled with compassion that the, he turned the arrows into flowers that fell uh, instead. Mm. Uh, he tried to uh, um, have him fear the violence that was coming his way. Nope, didn't, didn't buy it. <clears throat> and the last thing that Mara tried was to get the Buddha to doubt himself. Who are you to think you can wake up? Who are you? Mara says. And the Buddha's response was to reach down and touch the earth and say, and say the earth is my witness. The earth is my witness. Together with all beings, we wake up together. And, uh, and Mara knew that he was defeated and, and left, <clears throat> but didn't go far away. <laughs> we might become familiar with Mara ourselves. <laughs> so, so when the Buddha had this insight and didn't get knocked off the, off the path by Mara, uh, he didn't know quite what to do. He didn't know quite what to do. How do you take something wordless, this insight that he had, that, that, that transcends language, transcends the mind, and, and communicate it to someone to help other people? Hmm. The very first people that he, um, that he taught were children. And uh, he taught the children uh, tangerine meditation. And we'll, we can do that sometime. We can do a tangerine meditation. It's something that Thich Nhat Hanh uh, knew from, from, from being a child before he even knew what it was. He, he, he tells stories of, of his mother would give him a, a cookie and he would sit there for an hour and, and enjoy this cookie for an hour. And this tangerine meditation, uh, I do it with the kids at the high school every year. They have me over there to do it. And one time I did it uh, in, a, in a big setting. There was 300 or so people there, and everybody had a tangerine. And when everybody began to peel into the tangerine, it was this aroma was incredible. <laughs> it was really cool. It was really cool. <clears throat> but that wasn't words, right? He had to find a way to put this into words. So his first attempt at teaching what his insight was in words was what we're going to take up in our practice period, the Four Noble Truths. Mm -hmm. So this goes back to the very heart 
of our practice, the very beginning of our practice. Uh, and I'm just going to briefly touch on what it, what the Four Noble Truths are to kind of give us some context, but we're going to go into it in much more detail over the coming, coming weeks. So the, the Four Noble Truths are these. Suffering exists. Suffering has causes. That's number two. Liberation exists. And there's a path to liberation. So these things seem like so obvious. How could we possibly spend eight weeks uh, looking at these, these four short little things? <clears throat> but uh, eight weeks is not enough time to look at these. This is a lifetime to look at this together. So the first noble truth, suffering exists. Um, you know, you, you might think that 2,500 years ago in India, um, the Buddha vanquished Mara, uh, but he's found us right here in Anacortes. <laughs> still there, still working on us, right? Still working on us. <clears throat> uh, and, and suffering is not a really good translation of, of this first noble truth that suffering exists. Uh, the, the, the Pali word is dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, dukkha. Um, we have a word sort of like, like it, dukkhi. You know, it's kind of, that's kind of a good translation, I think, of dukkha. Um, this, uh, we, we, when we use the word suffering, the first thing that comes to mind is gross, painful, um, something really awful has happened. Huge, big, suffer. You know, we can see pictures of poor, starving children with distended bellies and stick-like arms and legs, and we think that's suffering. But dukkha is, is that, but dukkha is much more subtle and everyday and present in all that we do in ways that we're not quite aware of. So when we use the word suffering, we risk saying, oh, I don't suffer. You know, I'm, not, I'm, not like, I'm not in that situation. I don't have those problems. But um, what we'll look at, in the next, specifically the next two weeks, is different levels of dukkha in our lives so that we can start to see it more clearly and see that, that we, do, what we really do suffer, but not in that, always that big, huge way that that, that word suffering seems to imply. So we're going to be talking about um, the Buddhist hell realms, this mythology of the Buddhist hell realms. That, that uh, sounds so foreign, but it's actually quite useful. Uh, the dukkha arises from the play of opposites of human life. No. So there, there, there's what's called the, the eight worldly winds in, in Buddhist uh, uh, mythology, I guess, or Buddhist uh, philosophy. The, and those eight worldly winds are uh, pleasure and pain. These are opposites. Praise and blame, opposites. Gain and loss, and fame and ill repute. And we suffer as human beings uh, partly because we are locked in those dualities. Even when we're getting just the ones we want, 
the pleasure, the praise, you know, all those things that we think are great, we still suffer because we know that they don't last. We know that, you know, when, when all of a sudden I'm famous, I'm on the front page of the New York Times, that the next day I will not be on the front page of the New York Times. <laughs> we know that right in the middle of it. So then all of a sudden we, we create all this grasping to make sure we're back on the front page of the New York Times the next day. We might recognize this in our politicians, right? <laughs> yeah. So our human life alternates between those opposites and, um, and even what appears to be the object of our happiness doesn't make us happy. So we suffer. Yeah, nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. So we'll look at that. We'll look at that in some detail. So then the second truth is that there's a path to suffering. And that path to suffering is that we grasp after what we think we want and we push away what we think we don't want and we are locked in ignorance. Now, ignorance has a technical meaning in Buddhist language. Ignorance is not that I've never heard of this before. Ignorance is that I know this, but I turn away. And, and that defines so much of our lives. Those three things, grasping, aversion, and ignorance, define so much of our lives. So we will look at that path. Um, <clears throat> And then we will look at liberation. We will look at what that really means. What, what is liberation? There's a phrase in the sutras that talks about liberation as the sure heart's release. The sure heart's release. The heart that is settled unable to be knocked about by those worldly winds we talked about, is a sure heart, and it releases. Uh, and this, this sure heart goes by all kinds of names, all kinds of names in, in, the, in the Buddhist tradition. Here's just a few of them. The awakened heart, the subtle, the peaceful, the supreme, inner safety, non-distress, the pure heart, freedom, the shelter, the island, the deathless, the beyond, the unconditioned, and one that we'll probably recognize from something we did recently, the greatest happiness from our sutra. This, um, <clears throat> this liberation is something that we have to know for ourselves. It's like that um, third step. Uh, it exists, and we know it as a result of our practice, as a result of the cessation of suffering in our lives. And the reason it has so many names is that everyone knows it personally for themselves. So the experience that I name a certain way isn't how you're going to name it. 
you're going to find your own name for this. But we can know this together because it doesn't belong to any one of us. It's not my liberation. It's our liberation. And we can touch that. And then finally, the fourth is um, there's a path that takes us there. And that path is the Noble Eightfold Path. And that includes, and they, again, these are different, slightly different words and different traditions um, talk about this, but it's right view, right intention or thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. And I hesitate to use that word right because it seems value-laden. Um, what it really means, that word, I think is maybe better translated as wise, it's not right because it says in this book that this is the right view. It's right because it's effective. It's right because it works. It's in alignment with your experience. Uh, it's in alignment with what you, ex you see brings liberation in your life. Okay, so that's the overview of what we're going to do for the next eight weeks. <clears throat> Hope we can get through this. <laughs> what I'd like to ask us to do this evening is to um, spend a few moments thinking about our intention for this practice period. Eight weeks is a long time, and a lot is going to happen. A lot's going to happen as we're together, and a lot's going to happen in your life outside Without an intention, it's easy to get started and then lose your energy and go off some other way. So uh, an effective intention is one that is fairly broad, not so specific that it's only what you can imagine right now, but not so broad that it's meaningless. You know, so, like for instance, my, my intention in this practice period might be something like, um, I aspire to be with whatever arises during this practice period. Or it might be something like, um, I vow to sit every day for at least 20 minutes during this practice period. Or it might be, um, I vow to keep my heart open to my suffering during the practice period. So whatever it is that you come up with, I suggest that you write it down and that you put it somewhere where you can see it. Maybe on your refrigerator or next to your bed or on the mirror in the bathroom, something like that so that uh, you can remind yourself of what your aspiration is. And it's okay as you're going along if you want to modify your aspiration and, and change it a little bit or a lot. Uh, go ahead, change it. But keep an aspiration. Keep, uh, keep yourself moving toward this liberation that, that uh, this whole practice period is about. So let's take just a, a couple of minutes to sit together and, and look into our hearts 
and try and find the words for our aspiration. Don't rush too quickly to the words. Don't make them an idea. But look at what your heart is leading you towards. Feel feel the aspiration arising in your body rather than in your mind. Let's have a sound of a bell. And then in in a a couple of minutes, yeah, just just one bell is fine. In in another, in a couple of minutes, then invite the bell again to, uh, to bring us back. Thank you.